0: Recently Amnesty International did a study where they looked at 50 different cases um, of women applying for asylum. These decisions had actually been overturned on appeal where initially they'd been refused Um, and the reason why they were refused was because the UK border officer essentially made a negative assessment of the credibility of the of the applicant. Welcome to the Brown Don't Frown podcast with your host Tanya Hardcastle. We're here to engage in a thoroughly inclusive conversation with women from different backgrounds. Shaped by our cultural, racial and social experiences, we share our stories. Hello, fellow podcast listeners. I'm joined today by the lovely Zoe Bantelman, and today's topic is women and immigration. I guess we can start off by telling everyone how we know each other. Yeah, let's do that. We both used to work, well, Zoe still works there, but we used to work at immigration chambers predominantly with barristers and we did immigration and asylum and human rights work. I worked in immigration for a couple of years but you've been there for longer and you're now you're a qualified barrister. Do you want to tell us a bit more about yourself? Not much longer than you. <laughs> you've been doing it for two years. Yeah.
1: Uh, I've been doing it for two and a half years mm-hmm. but yeah now just a qualified immigration barrister and sort of doing human rights asylum nationality, everything, really.
0: Yeah, you're doing a, a good mix of, I guess, the personal side of immigration as well as the corporate business side as well. So you get exactly a, get yeah. a bit of everything. I think what really spurred me on to talk about today's topic is how hard it is to actually document how many illegal migrants there are in the UK. And I think the most vulnerable out of them are women because of the way in which society has regarded women. Even in the most modern times that we live in, there's still so much discrimination and inequality and I think when you add immigration to the mix adds to the stress of everything. And I guess it's really hard to sort of pinpoint how many migrants there are in the UK. Recent studies say anything between 400 to 600,000 illegal immigrants, and it's just something that I guess governments can't really know for sure because yeah how
1: do you you can't really send around a survey
0: exactly just historically both men and women have quite different migration experiences men typically especially in more um, well I guess the non-western countries there is a, a sharp distinction between men being breadwinners and women sort of taking more of a back seat and that sort of maybe disproportionately affects women uh, women migrants. Yes, yeah. there's
1: so many different types of women migrants. Though it's hard to come yeah, up with just yeah, there are economic
0: single... migrants who come here for a professional role, and there are others who are just here for asylum or as refugees. So I guess it does. It's very varied, isn't it? In terms exactly. of the ex- per- someone's personal experience,
1: so many different backgrounds, also so many different ethnicities, so yeah, many different yeah. identities that are in the mix. It's not just one type. Um, yeah children are really vulnerable too. So it's not just women. I think it's probably those
0: two groups together. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of articles nowadays when they talk about immigration are quite sensationalist and people aren't, you know, ordinary journalists aren't experts in immigration law. And you sometimes read some articles and you think this is not very accurate.
1: Yes, that's the worst. Um, I, I think even before I came here, when I was on the train, I was reading, I'm sure we'll get to it later, that this report about this high court case and it was in the family court yeah. and it was written by another barrister, but they kept using the word deported.
0: Yeah. Which is something yeah,
1: you and I know very yeah. well that that only relates if you had committed a crime and then you're asked to leave the UK or you're forced to leave the UK. Whereas ordinarily it's just removed if the Home Office just puts you on a plane and sends you back.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's for the listeners. I hope you uh, tuned into that very specific detail that Zoe's just told you. Sorry, guys. <laughs> very technical for the geeks out there. I guess immigration law, a lot of people say that it, it breaches Article 14 of the European Convention in that it discriminates disproportionately against women. And there have been so many studies about it. I think the Migration Observatory um, with Oxford University recently said that women are disproportionately affected on the basis that they they're too poor to marry a non-EU citizen apparently. There is a threshold for people who marry a British citizen isn't there in terms of how much you've got to show that you're you have either in savings or in earnings. The finding of the report basically said that that threshold of £18,600 income does disproportionately affect women and young people. Um, So I found that quite interesting because we spoke about this before, I think, when we said how a lot of people in UK, British citizens, don't actually earn that money. So
1: Yeah, eighteen thousand six hundred. It yeah. seems like a large amount of money. Yeah. It also, to me at least, seems like quite an arbitrary threshold. Yeah,
0: where do they get that from?
1: I have no idea. I'm sure there's some basis <laughs> yeah. for it. I'm sure there's some great basis for it. But it's it's worrying that I guess all thresholds might be accused of this, of having set too hard of a line for someone mm. to meet and it doesn't cater to someone's particular circumstances but in this case I think probably women are disproportionately affected by it
0: there's so many different cultures where yeah. women aren't
1: the breadwinner no, where they're, women...
0: uh, and they're historically sometimes seen as quite passive as well you know women don't see working as something they they want to aspire to they prefer to stay at home and raise children or be housewives and that can disproportionately affect them there's so many other things that are attached to living as an equal citizen because there's you know being immersed in the culture understanding the society and sometimes there are those barriers including language as well I think and belonging and you don't work so I think the struggle is quite intersectional when it comes to women and migration
1: I saw a recent article on this exact point on this eighteen thousand six hundred oh, really? point. Yeah. <laughs> Basically Madeline Sumption and Carlos Vargas Silva in the Journal of Economics, Race, and Policy said that British working women are thirty percentage points less likely to earn enough to sponsor a non-EA partner, yeah, compared to male compared to males. So that's, that's a significant amount. Yeah, and they said that working British ethnic minorities, so I'm guessing women and men, mm. are seven percentage points less likely to earn enough compared to the British white group so it's both aspects it's both being women well, and, and being ethnic non-white minorities, yeah sort of doubly hit by it but basically um an ethnic minority woman would need to earn 15,550 um, for a British women and raise it to 24,600 for a British men in order for it to be the
0: equivalent oh really yeah so so it'd have to be a level playing field and that's the exactly. only way they do it and that
1: made me think it. of, you know, that very famous image um, that is the distinction between equality, equality and, and equity. equity. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, I think equity is about how to make everyone access the same thing in the same way. And equality is just about everyone being treated the same. And there's an assumption that equality is enough. So something like a threshold of 18,600 would be equal. Because
0: everyone else everyone is subjected to it. So exactly. therefore it's equal. But then it doesn't no. take account of privilege. No. Or people who backgrounds. are I don't know if you recently came across the domestic abuse bill. No, but I haven't. I haven't heard about it. Yeah. Yet. So, I mean, it, it basically. Oh, is
1: this the one that actually before Parliament was prorogued? Yes, it was going to. Yeah, 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 and right, it's yes. been now
0: pushed on, onto the back burner now, so because <laughs> of the election situation. But anyway, it just basically says that migrant victims of domestic violence are significantly more vulnerable because they're less likely to come forward, and that's because I think. If you are here in the UK on the basis that you are the partner of a British citizen, and the relationship breaks down, you can still actually remain in the UK on the basis of domestic violence. So you can apply for a separate leave to remain application. But in order to prove that you're a victim of domestic violence, it's really difficult because the threshold is set so high. The evidence that they require is quite vague. It says you just have to show that your relationship with your partner broke down as a consequence of domestic violence. And one of the examples that they provide is that the person had a previous DV conviction. And it's just like, well, what if they've never had one because it's all been behind closed doors? It doesn't really make sense.
1: Yeah, I think I was looking at this earlier and just yeah. the um, the different types of evidence you could provide. And you're right, criminal conviction is obviously conclusive. So if yeah. you have one, then that's it. If you have a police caution, then that's enough. But other things, and if you go down to the end of the examples, yeah, things like the statement from the applicant is considered to be weak. weak yeah. So your own words, your own voice about what happened simply isn't it's enough. You need other yeah. evidence. You need someone else to corroborate
0: yeah.
1: with objective evidence. And, and that's difficult,
0: especially... Yeah and then what happens to those people they just don't tell anyone so they either stay in the relationship or if they end up you know being lucky enough to escape the relationship they end up becoming illegal because they don't have leave because they're not with the with their significant other i think there's so many issues
1: with tackling domestic violence i think the first thing is obviously there's so many people who don't even realize themselves that they're a victim so someone would yeah. have to identify to them and then they would have to realize that this is possibly an, e- an
0: option yeah they
1: could say maybe give me some discretionary leave to stay here on the basis that I'm a victim oh let me think of what evidence who can I go to who do you think is whose word is enough because mine isn't so yeah, who, yeah. Who do you need to hear from that I'm also
0: a victim of domestic violence? I guess that brings us to the topic of credibility and women in asylum cases, because that's something that women seem to always fall down on when it comes to, you know, getting an an asylum application approved.
1: Not always. (laughs) There There are some women uh, refugees, but it's, I mean definitely gender I think is one of the factors which can make things complicated and I think that gets compounded with other things. Like yeah. memory and trauma don't necessarily go together very well. No, they well. don't
0: because why would you want to remember something so brutal that happened to you? You wouldn't Yeah, would or want even to if you that? do
1: want to, yeah. can you really remember it properly if you've been through something so difficult? And it, and I guess that combines with other factors like culture. Yeah. And the different traditions that they're exposed to. sometimes women aren't really involved in the political sphere. Yeah. sometimes they aren't really told things. They aren't
0: aware about their rights a lot of the time as well. Um, yeah because I think it's really hard to even I myself being an English speaker find it difficult to look at legislation to look at laws and find them accessible to myself and I can't imagine what it would be like for a migrant woman whose, whose language first language may not be English to actually understand what they're entitled to. And that's the same thing going back to the example of domestic violence victims. Like, they don't know what is accessible to them, so they often don't really do anything. Yeah. I guess that's a real education issue. Recently, Amnesty International did a study where they looked at 50 different cases um, of women applying for asylum. These decisions had actually been overturned on appeal, where initially they'd been refused. Um, And the reason why they were refused was because the UK border officer essentially made a negative assessment of the credibility of the of the applicant and the reasons for that you know varied from basically thinking speculatively about the person's arguments you know saying that a couple of inconsistencies in the evidence provided meant that they were lying and also not taking account of context as well because I think the home office prescribes a lot of guidance for every country And that's quite a lot of contextual and cultural information to help the immigration officer make a rounded assessment of someone's credibility. And if that's not being referred to, then you're not going to make an accurate Yeah, and it's not just
1: the Home home Office's guidance. Mm. There's other organisations that do it as well. There's charities, there's NGOs. There's even, like, the US Department of State does one. Australia has their own report. So all of these things together... um, produce information about the country of origin but even within those that doesn't necessarily tell you about that specific person's context like if you have someone from a really remote um, ethnic tribe somewhere that probably won't be in the country of origin information you might Mm -hmm. need to ask a really specific question to an expert and that might be more money have or don't have maybe they'll qualify for legal aid so there's so many barriers to making a good asylum claim but that's interesting that these 50 were overturned on appeal because what I always tell people is that credibility is one of the hardest things to challenge on
0: appeal really because a judge has
1: already one judge has heard everything that so are these cases that oh these were cases that were refused by the home office initially and then on an appeal yeah well around. yeah I mean they have a, a long interview and they basically just try to poke holes don't they yeah
0: in your essentially. story it's interrogation isn't it it's not really an interview to try and figure out what's actually happening it's more like let's do everything we can trip them up sort of thing exactly. I don't know if that's the attitude but if based on working with people who had immigration issues working in immigration law, a lot of the time that is what we understand happens yeah, exactly.
1: They, everything has to be perfectly internally consistent. Everything's for them got to, to line up.
0: Yeah, and it's just exactly. like human error happens, you know. So you yeah. might say one thing, and you know, it might be the story might be slightly different, but it doesn't mean the material aspect of it has changed. Like
1: not just yeah. that you might not want to tell a stranger Every the first time detail. you speak yeah. to them about that time you were raped,
0: or yeah.
1: or maybe that you you're claiming on the basis of your sexual orientation or something like that. I mean, we've seen outrageous decisions on, on cases involving women who are, for example, lesbians or bisexual. And the Home Office says, we simply don't believe, believe you. that you're gay yeah. because you have children.
0: Because it's impossible to be both a lesbian and have children. And people live that sort of lifestyle because they're so desperate to fit in to the heteronormative lifestyle that they end up marrying someone of the opposite sex and then have children just to sort of prove themselves wrong but it's so hard to do that when you're
1: yeah there might be cultural pressure you may not know as well yeah you may not yourself had (laughs) had
0: you're coming out until later (laughs) in which case you know you might have had a couple children by then do you think women do encounter additional hurdles compared to men just on the basis that a lot of what happens when it, when it comes to things like domestic violence takes place, you know, in the, in the private home and it's really hard to come forward when historically that person has been stigmatised culture in, within their own culture to not talk about these things openly for fear of being shamed or, you know, being humiliated or being told they're weak. And it is about, a lot of the time it is about status and about image and about preserving that perfect family life, yeah, so that probably
1: adversely affects some women more than others. Like you can imagine, for example, I'm not saying that it wouldn't happen, but that uh, someone from America, like myself, might be more willing to come forward and say and realize that they had been domestically abused than someone from a different culture where it was just completely impossible to speak about it when you just you know, get on with it. And yeah. you think, oh, well, even rape. it's not rape Uh, I didn't want it but it was sex because we're we're married
0: so it's not rape yeah 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 I mean another really interesting one was to do with EU migration and it was against it was so it was HMRC and a young woman who was pregnant and self-employed and she was an EU citizen
1: okay interesting yeah. yeah
0: and the european court of justice essentially said that pregnant self-employed eu citizens can retain their status as self-employed during periods of pregnancy or maternity leave even if they aren't working and that was quite a quite a strong judgement because it really sort of strengthened and bolstered with rights even if when they aren't working and i think just given brexit and this whole uncertainty of eu citizens that really sort of reinforced that you know even if you are if you aren't working and you're pregnant, you you won't lose your right of residence. In order to obtain right of residence formally, you need to have been in the UK for a qualifying period. And qualifying period is, is essentially defined as either working or studying or being self-employed for a certain period of time. Yeah, yeah.
1: so um, it's more about... If you're a European citizen, which I think is the case here, you yeah. have to be exercising treaty rights when yeah. you're in the UK in order to be a, a qualifying person. So that's if you want to bring in your family members, for example. If you, you want, want to, to permanently stay people. in the UK. Exactly. Yeah. Or if you want to obtain permanent residence, this is now falling away with Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone loves Brexit. And so, <laughs> um, yeah, so I think we had, had a prior case already that said, in periods of pregnancy or childbirth, that wouldn't break the continuity of of your residence here. Um, So you would still be considered... Exercising your treaty rights. Yeah, exactly. In this case, just again reiterated that but in the specific context of whether or not you would considered you'd be considered to be working so would you be considered to be self-employed or a worker if you had a really horrible pregnancy or really horrible childbirth and you had a gap yeah exactly exactly. for a whole year or two years even and the court Um, said yes if only for a short period and um
0: if I think you returned within a a reasonable amount of time. It's good that they didn't define what the reasonable amount of time is, because it does, I think, depend on, as you said, pregnancy, what sort of pregnancy someone's had and their own personal circumstances. But reasonable time, I guess, can be interpreted to mean, you know, within, within good reason, not excessive, like not five years off. But if it's within a couple of years, I'd say, yeah, yeah, that's quite decent then,
1: yeah. And I think the court also importantly said, you know, a pregnant woman, they're in a vulnerable condition. This is a vulnerable state. We need to consider all of the other directives and
0: regulations about that. Yeah, absolutely. That is really refreshing to see because of how much brexit has turned the lives of a lot of eu citizens upside down and i think many of them feel very insulted having to prove their right to stay when some of them have been here for decades and now all of a sudden they're they're finding that they have to prove themselves i know this that is they deserve a new to be rush. there yeah, yeah. yeah this is very concerned but not just that i think what are what will
1: european people think already i think that numbers, the statistics of, of migrants coming
0: from the European Union have dropped. Yeah, they've dropped drastically. Yeah, And I think there are about an estimated 4 million EU citizens in the UK. Only, I think, not even a million of them have actually applied for the EU settlement scheme, so... Yeah, yeah, as you said, imagine. another wind rush is going to... Exactly, three million. Is it pending? Uh, yeah, there might be like a rush right up, right towards the end and everyone tries to apply and crashes the system. I
1: think yeah. the website was already crashing
0: the it's other day. It's got glitches, yeah. But at least we have an extension, so <laughs> <laughs> those servers can work on that. I guess another thing that's quite interesting to talk about, people who want to work in the UK, women specifically who want to work in the UK and further their careers, you know, do we think the immigration rules, as they currently stand, discriminate against women? The whole gender pay gap thing, which is so prominent, um, and it's quite surprising in 2019 in modern day Britain that, it's, that there is this discrimination in, in the employment sector between men and women um, and what they essentially get paid, even if they do the exact same job.
1: I was looking up some statistics earlier
0: just because I thought I don't actually
1: know what the pay gap is. Yeah. And the Office for National Statistics said that it was 8.9% yeah of a gap among full-time employees. But the in, and and it had fallen slightly from last year. Last year it was 17.8%, this year yeah. it's 17.3%, yeah, that's, that's, that's so an improvement. That's, yeah. That's a huge improvement. Yeah. But the interesting thing is about how it's distributed. So for us, um, being under 40, basically the pay gap is zero. There's almost no difference in what we get paid compared to what we get paid, Which makes sense. My male colleagues and I get paid the same. I know that basically. But for 50 to 59, so that post having children coming back to the workforce, being in a more senior position. Yeah there it's over 15%. That's really where the pay gap is. Yeah. It's in that,
0: those later stages of life. Yeah, and men tend to... Their earning potential is reached, you know, a lot later than women. Like, women reach their peak earning potential, like, early 40s, whereas men can keep on going for several years after that.
1: Yeah. And that's quite is that, Is that true? Yeah. I, I don't know. I guess it depends on, on the women. Uh, that's probably true across the average because
0: so many women...
1: You know, take your breaks. breaks. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. they're the ones to sacrifice
0: their careers. And the thing is, women are a lot more reluctant to um, to ask for, for that pay rise. They just, they're not confident enough. I know a lot of my male counterparts don't shy away from asking for a raise if they think they're, you know, within their rights and they're entitled to one because of their experience, because of what they bring to the table. You know, especially women, migrant women, who aren't born in the UK. I think there's, again, that added... Detachment from wider society, which may deter them from asking for a raise.
1: Yeah, I guess. I guess it depends. Mm. I think now,
0: probably because we live in London, it's yeah, different. It is different. We are in that little London bubble, aren't we? We really are. We talk a bit more about people who come to the UK to work. So it's the Tier Two general category, which is yeah. what it's called.
1: So that's for highly skilled migrants. Yes,
0: and there's a pay threshold. Yeah. For a new entrants.
1: So um, if you're a new entrant, that's if you're under 26. Or if you're, for example, graduate. yeah, exactly. a student here and then you're wanting to switch over to get a job, you might be a new entrant. The rate yeah. is, it's nice and low. I think 20,800. Yeah, and we're talking about graduate level jobs, degree yeah. level jobs, so and it's, countrywide as well, not just London based That's across the yeah, that's entire, true. Okay. So yeah. maybe there's an but, issue there as well, different yes. socioeconomic issue, which yeah. we won't get into. Yeah, but yeah, twenty thousand eight hundred pounds, and it's funny that we're saying that's not so much now, given that we just had a massive <laughs> rant about eighteen thousand six hundred. I know.
0: Oh God. Yeah. And then for
1: everyone else, for experienced it's workers, it's a minimum of thirty thousand pounds, and yeah. sometimes depending on what your job is. If it's a particularly skilled or high-level job, it might even be higher. You yes. have to get paid at the minimum rate
0: for that job. So yes. you might be looking at 35000 as the minimum. There's an allocation as well, a monthly allocation, for how many employers are allowed to employ a certain number of migrant workers. From um, abroad, yeah. From abroad, yes. And this is by way of a certificate of sponsorship that they have to apply for from the Home Office, I guess the threshold or the allocation is quite significant independent on the pay of the, these jobs in question and the higher paid jobs are more prioritized, aren't they? From what I understand.
1: Yeah, they certainly are. Higher paid jobs, but also anything on the shortage occupation list. So if
0: it's something. Doctors.
1: Exactly. Engineers. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of the trickier professional jobs where there's just not enough people
0: in the UK who are going into those fields. But I guess talking about that, we can see how women can be negatively impacted uh, based on the conversation we've just been having about the fact that women tend to get paid less and therefore left out of that allocation if their job is paid salaries a lot less than their male counterpart.
1: Yeah, that's a possibility. Or they may just never be able to find a job that will appropriately pay them, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether or not they have the relevant experience or qualifications. So it is tricky. And even if they do get that job, there's another income threshold when they come to try to settle. Yes. And they have to get paid generally even more than when they started. Yes. Like right now, I think it's
0: £35,800, which is quite a bit of money. That is as well, especially if you factor in things like if women want to take a break from work, if they want to have children or if they want a career break um, and then they come back to work, it's a lot harder to sort of get into the swing of things and ask for...
1: Yeah. Well, I don't think that's tier paid. two really accounts for that as no. well. I don't think it accounts it for this no. extended break. No, it doesn't. And it doesn't account for the flexible working which we see so many women doing as they are coming back into their careers yeah. after having children. You probably wouldn't get paid enough.
0: No. To to be able to satisfy. That, yeah, your the hourly rate, rate would have to be insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's not really fair. So I guess they are disadvantaged in the sense that they won't have that work life balance. They might have to work longer hours. Um, as, and as a consequence, may have to sacrifice their family life, whereas settled women who work in the UK who are British or who are settled workers are less likely to have to deal with that.
1: And that's not to say none of these issues ever apply to men. Of course, are no, yeah. some men who will take parental leave and I'm sure there are some male couples as well. face
0: these same issues but I think it probably does disproportionately affect women. So I guess to wrap things up post-Brexit risks I suppose there are quite a few aren't there in terms of European women uh, victims of domestic violence and a lot of women I guess are, are, are even now still unaware of the EU settlement scheme and how it works in principle and I don't think it helps with the fact that you know it's a digital application service so you need to have access to a smartphone or an Android or Or a tablet, essentially. I understand there are also service points where people can go if they don't have access to the technology. Yeah,
1: I think there are, exactly.
0: I think they're realizing that it's a risk. I think
1: it's been said enough in the media, and this is where the media comes in and is quite (laughs) important, besides getting things wrong about immigration all the time and and they say we're really concerned that this is going to be the next wind rush not just a statement like that after we've seen you know the reverberations of wind rush through society in the past few years yeah is making them a little bit more wary and i think it's good now obviously i personally think it's good that brexit's being delayed but in any case i yeah. think it's good that it gives everyone a little bit of an extension of time yeah some people think they are just entitled to be here because they've been here for so long yeah yeah. and the sad thing is when you say yeah you are but um someone's going to want proof of that yeah someone's going to want to see evidence of that and do you have all these documents for all these different years
0: and people don't tend to have them or they get lost and you know we're at a time where we don't have paper documents anymore everything's digital and obtaining records I mean it's not easy is it even despite the whole GDPR thing and having access to, to your data whenever you want, you should be able to. Okay.
1: Mean it, and if we're thinking about a woman in a coercive relationship who's already had her power stripped away from her, she may not get post. She may not have any of these bills or bank accounts or other things that the Home Office think she would have the, all of this official documentation yeah. in her name. Yeah. So how is she possibly going to prove her residence here she may not have ever worked she may
0: have barely have left the house yeah there is a lot of misinformation around the actual amount of documentation you need to provide You get settled status i think there's a distinction between Mm. pre-settled status which allows you you'd have to wait for five years and you'd have to be in the uk for a significant amount of time to qualify to become a permanent resident
1: but But, pre-settled status is quite easy it is yeah it's relatively easy yeah and I think a lot of people think they're just not entitled to it yeah like I spoke to a European citizen the other day who's been here as a student and he's been here three and a half years and I said oh so you've applied for a pre-settled yeah. status surely he said no I'm, I'm not entitled I'm not <laughs> I've not been here yeah. five years and I was just like oh um This is an illegal context. I can't give you
0: legal advice.
1: Look into it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting because recently the Home Office got told off by the Advertising Standards Authority for misinforming people about the EU settlement scheme because essentially the advert said, you know, you can apply with essentially little to no documentation. And it turns out, yes, you need to provide documentation, even if it's for pre-settled status. You need to show that you have a EU passport and that you're present in the UK when you make the application. And that wasn't made sufficiently clear in the ad. Um, And that's that's pretty embarrassing, especially for, you know, quite vulnerable groups of people um, who may not understand how it actually works in principle. Post Brexit risks for women definitely. And clamping down on the immigration system as a whole, we've got Priti Patel as a home secretary. So I don't know what that means for...
1: And she's a woman.
0: She's a woman. To she's, be honest, the women home secretaries, yeah,
1: they haven't had the best of records. No, they
0: haven't. To <laughs> finish off, to wrap up. If you want to talk about a book you've recently read which interested you, which has a feminist theme to it. I felt that under a lot of pressure. pressure yes. I guess it's just any book that, <laughs> that resonated with you. I mean, I'm, I think I'd be very enlightened to know about this book because I'm looking for some new content to read, so...
1: Okay, well, it's, it's, an, it's an oldie. It's called Orlando. It's by Virginia Woolf. I know everyone's like groaning when I say this. Um, but it was published ages ago um, in 1928. And yeah. there was just one quote that I thought was really interesting. It yeah. says, um, Orlando had become a woman. There is no denying it. But in every other respect, Orlando remained precisely as he had been. The change of sex, though it altered their future, did nothing whatever to alter their identity. And wow. I think I think it's interesting, not only because it touches on all of these different trans and identity issues, which cross over with women, but also are, are separate. Yes. So I, I think it's important because of that. And for its time obviously it was groundbreaking. That is very groundbreaking. Yeah, and I just came to know about this book myself. I had no idea. And then two yeah. friends were telling me it's it's actually incredible. It's you need to be incredibly progressive it.
0: Yeah. the nineteen twenties to come up with a quote like that, yeah.
1: And I think the end is quite rambly, so don't I'm not I'm not saying that the book is entirely amazing, but I think what it talks about and the issues of of dealing with being gender fluid or having um questioning your own identity. identity exactly. Yeah,
0: yeah
1: and it made me think at least how much of what I construct my own identity is based on my gender and I think probably less than other people we're living in a very modern society where I do feel I'm quite privileged and I do feel that I have a lot of the same benefits as men would have and the same privileges as they would have yeah. so I don't think I construct as much of my identity based on my gender as maybe other people would yeah but I do often feel that my identity is being constructed by the way that other people perceive me. Yes, absolutely. And I am perceived as a woman. Yeah. And I think somehow that feeds back into my own identity. And so it's not as if they're separate. It goes to being a visible minority or a visible gender. Yeah, it
0: sort of bounces back, doesn't it? It's like a reflective thing if you look in the mirror you're sort of looking at what society wants you to be as opposed to what you actually see so the vision can be quite clouded in terms of how you perceive yourself and how others perceive you because I guess the two sort of become amalgamated into one mix and that's how it, that's when it gets confusing exactly yeah. I I don't think of myself
1: as a minority ethnic woman barrister yeah. I, I think of myself as an immigration barrister but yeah. when I walk into the immigration courtroom and it's a white male judge that's when the council is questioning yeah exactly everyone else in the room is a
0: white man and then I think you've become self-conscious exactly you Mm perceived me to be an ethnic woman so I'll leave you with that listeners um I'd like to thank you Zoe for joining oh it's a pleasure podcast and and sparing your sparing your Wednesday evening after a long day at work it was a pleasure thanks for having me Thank you for listening to Brown Don't Frown Podcast. If today's discussion interested you or you want to share your story, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Brown Don't Frown Podcast and on Twitter at BDF Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at tanyu'sweeklydose.com. Join the conversation using the hashtag Brown Don't Frown Podcast. Please like, share and subscribe. Thank you.